Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, my name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always from Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, it's been a while. It has been a while. It's been almost a month. I know. You've uh, you've been busy. How was your holiday? It, actually, my holiday was pretty quiet. We were basically around the house, except we did like a like an overnight thing. Uh, up in the forest of Dean, which is near Wales. But aside from that, we just hung around the home, had Christmas dinner here, uh, went to some friends for New Year's, but didn't really travel much at all. You really enjoy going to Wales. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. I was just talking to Lisa Farnell this weekend at the rink, and she, she said, yeah, Wales is basically at the Canada of the UK. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like off to the side, not as populated, Pretty similar to England, but not quite, and a lot of forests. All right. What's the what's the biggest difference between – you went in the summer. What's the biggest difference between Wales in the winter and Wales in the summer? Uh, it rains more – well, actually, in the this summer it rained a lot where we went. It also depends where you go, but it's colder and darker in the winter. Yep. Uh, and then you went to Finland – and the team did not do as well this year as last year, but you said the competition was a little bit stiffer this year. Yeah, no, it's definitely the, the level of the playing fields getting like harder every year. The number of countries that come with like professional paid coaching staff is kind of shooting up every year. Um, I think this juniors across the board is getting more difficult. So, uh, I'm trying to think like, you know, like we, there's a lot of good countries in this year, like countries that are normally in the A pool were down in the B. So on the women's side, you had Scotland and the USA had both dropped down last year and neither made it back out. Scotland didn't even make wow. the playoffs. USA lost in the quarterfinals. Wow. Um, on the men's side, Sweden came down and they were really strong. Germany was down. They were a very, very strong team. We played them. Yeah. I saw you got stuck in a pool, both with Germany who has some players that even have, I, th- I think, uh, Totsik, their, um, their skip, I think has been an alternate at, um, worlds. Um, so they, they had, they had them, you had, you had to play them. And then, uh, your nemesis from Italy were also, were also in your pool. It looked like. Yeah. Italy was there. Um, it was, that was a close one. That was probably that and Slovakia kind of decided whether we made the playoffs or not. We lost extra end. We lost extra end to Denmark, lost extra end to Italy and lost on last shot to Slovakia. Um, so like right in there. If we win two of those three, we're definitely in the playoffs. We win one of those three. We pro- we might squeak in depending on DSC and stuff, but uh, it was that kind of a week. Like, the, you know, they talk about the wrong side of the inch, and that's basically mm-hmm. what we were. Like a, basically a couple of shots here or there, which like always happens at this level. So, I mean, the guys are, are right in there, and they still got – like had two of them the, – the full team has two more years left of junior eligibility, and – uh Joe, the skip, and Harry, the lead, have three years left. So, and they, they really want to get to A's. That's like their their goal. So that's what we're kind of going to focus on for the next couple of years to try to get there. I think it's, I think this will be good for them. Uh, I think it, I think it'll be good uh, to have them knocked down a peg uh, this year to have them uh, more motivated for next season. 
Uh, I mean, maybe. I mean, to be honest, because we had a lot more time because we were out of the playoffs this year, we, we had some pretty frank conversations and kind of came up with a plan and uh, a list of things to work on. So we're not going to waste the second half of the season. We're just going to take away what, we, what didn't work and kind of attack those weaknesses and hopefully come back stronger. Yeah, I got to uh, over over my holiday. I went back to Oklahoma. Got to meet with our friend Mark No from the Curling Club. Uh, had a couple beers with him, and then you know, sounds like their club's doing uh, doing pretty strong. Uh, they just got new rocks, but uh, yeah, sounds like they're sounds like they're thriving there at Oklahoma Curling Club. Um, pretty low key. The rest of the holiday, we we had everyone over here for Christmas, which actually is good because it means extra people to to watch the kiddo. So, I was I was in favor of that. Uh, it's a, it's a full house, but it it actually made everything go smooth smoother. If that makes any sense. Um, yeah, I have, I have had a crappy weekend though. Oh no! Oh, what happened? I, so I'm here in my basement, which is where which is where I record this show. And down here in the basement, we have, you know, it's, it's a ha- half finished basement. Um, but basements are really rare in Virginia. So when this house was built and they kind of half finished the basement and added a bathroom down here, you have to have sump pumps that take the water from down in the basement up to the gravity line and then out to the sewer. So we have two sump pumps down here in the basement, one for your gray water, which would be, you know, we've got our washer and dryer down here. So the, the, you know, the water from the sink, the water from the washer, and then um, the sump pump for the black water, which is the water that comes from that, that goes from the bathroom to that sump pump. Well, that sump pump failed. So, oh no. Um, so we had some flooding, um, down in the basement and then me and my father-in-law, uh, got down into the hole and retrieved the sump pump. So we can see one, if it can be salvaged, if it just needs to be repaired or if we need to install a new one. So we, um, I'm trying very hard to not be graphic here, but we got we got all of the water uh, taken care of and out of the basement, and then retrieved this uh, this this sump pump from from the hole that it was in, uh, and that took uh, that took some uh, some gumption, um, but we we got it uh, done. We actually also the uh, this thing hasn't been looked at in a long time and the bolts holding the cap over the hole that the sump pump is in had actually rusted shut. So we had to take an angle grinder and grind all the bolts down in order to get the cap off and then get in there and, and retrieve, uh, retrieve this wonderful, this wonderful sump pump. So that was, (laughs) that was an adventure and uh, we'll see, We'll see what we're going to have to do, um, whether this thing can be just repaired or cleaned out and have it work again, or if we're going to have to drop about 400 bucks on a new one, but, and then, uh, and then install and then go through and get back into the hole and install that. And yeah, so it's been, it's been a lovely, lovely weekend and I am ready to, uh, to continue to talk curling. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I hope it, I hope it gets sorted soon because <laughs> you kind of need a sump pump, um, and I hope the damage isn't too bad. <laughs> no, the dent. No, nothing. So it it only flooded in the concrete floor part, really. So nothing. Okay. Uh, nothing of value, either actual value or sentimental value, was was lost. But pretty much anything that that was in that water or touched that water has been thrown out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so uh thought i was going to get to watch a lot more curling this weekend i know the usa challenge rounds are going on but uh that that uh that got thrown out the window including including getting to watch any of the nfl playoffs i did catch the end of the game yesterday between the bills and the texans which which was interesting i know our our friends from um our friends the grams from uh, game of stones pod were were not happy with the end of that game but i did get, get to catch the end of that i have not gotten to see hardly any curling although this morning i saw team Seneca's game they're in the they are in the c bracket trying to work their way to nationals i saw i able i was able to see one end where stephanie made a pretty nifty hit and roll to kind of save their team so i think that they're still in it i think they got to win one more in order to make nationals but yeah we're getting into season of champions time we've got playdowns going on playdowns coming up for canada and for yourselves there in england and then um yeah basically all over the world beginning of February is when I think we start seeing national championships come up. Yeah, we've got, we've got uh, what do I have? I've got Latvia. We've got a Latvia next week. Yeah, Rob, yeah your, Rob Retchless, friend of the podcast, is going to Europe to play with uh, you guys in a, uh, in a spiel. In Riga, Latvia. Have you been to Riga? That'll be interesting. I've been to Riga because I have played in. There's a there's a tournament, the WCT Challenge Round in Tukums, Latvia, which is about 90 minutes into the woods from Riga. But you have to fly into Riga to get there. So okay, I've been through Lat- Latvia. We went into, we did a day trip into Latvia when we were there. This was a couple of years ago, and uh, Riga's really nice. I gotta say, it's a really pretty kind of old European capital city. Uh, on the water um so yeah it's nice it's a nice place to go for sure uh i haven't been to this club though so we'll see oh so it's a club and not a uh not like an arena setup like they have at tukums yeah so tukums is like tukums, it's sorry. they take an arena and they convert it i think they do five sheets there i can't remember but um so they convert to an, and that's probably why because this is a two-sheet club but it's called the Baltic Super League. It is, I think, eight teams play a three-game round robin, then a semis and a finals. So, cool. Uh, five-game guarantee. The reason we're doing it is five-game guarantee. It's actually ten ends, so you get a lot of games, like a lot of a lot of value for money in terms of guaranteed games, and it's all full WCF rules. So I think the Latvians use it as a tune-up for their their championships too. So it's kind of set up all championship style so it's a little slightly different feel from uh, a conventional cash feel and then is rob flying back to canada and then going back out for england or is uh the english championships like right after that no he's flying out and then back and then out again so that's that's some dedication there so that'll be that'll <laughs> be good and we do the mixed doubles the weekend before so i'm doing mixed doubles got a day off then right into men so i'll get it all done 
first week of Feb, and then I'll be pretty much finished for the year, aside from mixed playdowns after that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I see you guys are 252nd in the order of merit. How will how will the Riga tournament help your help your order of merit standings? I don't even know if the order of merit will track <laughs> the Riga speed points. To be honest, I have no idea how that works. Um, Why wouldn't those count? Uh, to be honest, it's like, there's a lot of events here that are kind of decent standard that don't get caught with uh, order of merit points. So um, I think it's just communication and organization, right? I think definitely the order of merit stuff skews towards Canada for obvious reasons. And it seems like it's a little, you know, uh, it's probably just like whoever, I guess, Jerry Goetz or whoever's running curling zone. It's like got, someone's got to reach out to him and, and put the legwork in to kind of get the points in. And to be honest, like for our team, Order of merit points are meaningless, so we're not going to oh, go yeah. points chasing. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you're trying to get into a slam, it matters. Some countries do use it as a way to kind of rank teams, uh, but since England's a straight playdown system, uh, we, we picked events that worked in terms of schedule and and kind of made logical sense in terms of us getting as many games as possible and trying to bond as a unit over you know trying to. <laughs> Trying to get as high a ranking as we wanted in the world as the World Curling Tour, which probably actually to be honest, most of our points are still Rob's points from last year too. So uh, poor Rob has been poor, poor Rob has been pulled down by uh No you're done. Your year to date is more than the points that you brought in from last season. Oh here's okay, so here's a oh. fun game. Um yeah. Obviously, you have not uh, looked at these. So I will give you a name, uh-huh. and you tell me whether you're above or below them in the order, order of merit. Yeah. Um, Mike Farbelow. Oh, I've, I've played with Mike. I know. <laughs> That's why I'm, um, I'm asking. It's like, are you like, are you better or worse than everyone you've ever played with? And yeah, that's, yes, that's, that's exactly what you're doing the quiz, and I know you well, the answer is going to be we are worse than Mike Farbelow. You are above Mike Farbelow. We're above. Wow. I, I, I want to take this time to announce my retirement from curling. That's, <laughs> uh... um, okay. Uh, former Briar participant Greg Balston. Oh, Balston has to be ahead of us. You're ahead of Greg Balston. We're ahead of Greg Balston. Wow. This is like, uh, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should seek out our entire... Actually, Rob and I are eligible in Quebec by birthright. Maybe we should just... <laughs> That's right. ...and go, go, do, uh, go do a Quebec playdown by birthright. <laughs> Uh, actually, I don't. I don't even think you'd have to do a playdown. I think uh, I know. A, well, I, know I gotta a, sit out two years now for because I played oh, yeah. for the worlds. But yeah, right. yeah. Well, no, All I know. Right. Uh, I know a few of the. <laughs> I know a few of the um, provinces now. It's just direct entry. You don't even have to play down. And Quebec might be one of them. Okay, uh, next Quebec one probably is. Yeah. Uh, next one. Uh, oh, here's a good one. Uh, Jason Smith and the All Pro Curling Team. Where are they from? They're well. They play out of Minnesota, but it's the it's the Jared Allen team with Jason Smith. Oh, well, I, I'm I'm guessing we're ahead of them. You are you are ahead of them. Okay, yeah. Um, and let's see. 
Okay, here's here's a good one. Um, Twitter's own Matt Sussman. Matt Sussman played. Yeah, he played uh, in. Uh, he played in field. Where did he play in? Gotta give me what he played in. Uh, probably the Columbus Spiel because he's from Ohio. Let's see. Okay, so if you played one Spiel, I think we're probably ahead of him. He is ahead of you in order of merit. Whoa! <laughs> All right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> that might this might confirm my uh i think we've talked about it on this pod and i, I talked a bit about with a crossover pod with the game of stones guys um but order of merit doesn't translate into talent or merit right like you've, you've got to be careful about uh assuming one team is great because of where they are in the oom or uh you know not great because they're having an off year well i mean you get outside it's not playing much you get outside of like the top twenty, and it, it it's all kind of a crapshoot, isn't it? I mean, anyone from yeah. anyone from anyone from twenty one down to like a hundred could beat each other on any given day. All right, what? All right, I'll flip it around for you. What okay. What's the highest ranked team on order of merit right now that we've beaten this year? That you've beaten? Yeah. This year. Oh man. This year. <laughs> Do you know it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, tell everyone who it is because this is it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> uh it's Pat Ferris. Yeah. Ranked twenty eighth. Uh it says he's ranked thirty second. It was he was ranked thirty second when you Oh yeah, I'm on the I'm on the WCT, so say thirty twenty eighth here. Oh, he was thirty second when you beat him. Like they go out oh, like, beat him. Uh, you, oh, let me just a second. But right now it's twenty eighth, and oh, then wow. the highest ranked, the, the only team better than him that beat us this year. Uh, Ross, Ross right? He was sixty first. He was sixty first when you played him. Yeah, but he was like he'll be slamming by next year, guaranteed. Yeah. Um, where's Fournier? Though Fournier is ranked thirty third, like he beat us. Um, where is? Trying to go down the list here. Then it drops off pretty quick for other people who have beaten us. Stewart from Ontario. Yeah. Where are they? Uh, I don't. They were fifty third when you lost to them. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just kind of like so. It's like to my mind, they clearly the top. If you're in the top five, you're probably like a Briar World Champion contender. So I'm just going yeah. off. Right, what's right now on the World Curling Tour page, not um, Curling Zone. So it's Jacobs is one, Epping two, three Botcher, four Dean, five Cooey, six Gushu, right? So any of those kind of on the podium at the end of the year, I think there'd be like zero surprises. Um, you know, and just if you got the next tier, then I'd say Moore, DeCruz, Schwaller, McEwen, Ross Patterson, Dunstone. Right, if they they end up kind of on the podium, it's kind of like it's a breakthrough year for them, so we wouldn't be shocked. But they're still probably a step below, and then from that down to say top twenty, I'd say it's pretty even. You get to the twenties, it's kind of the teams that are are trying to punch through. So you go roll in the twenties, you got your Tanner Horgans, Ross White, Yep Van Dorp, Thomas Olsford's new team. Uh, Pat Ferris, Karsten Sturme. So like teams that if you follow the tour closely, you'll hear of. And then really after that, it 
it's kind of just like your two irregulars. And then mm-hmm. I think a lot of the points, like there's Mark Keane who we played, like he beat us pretty, he beat us in two ends. <laughs> He's ranked 47th in the world, right? So there's a good 20 point places between him and Pat Ferris, but Keane's been to a briar. Uh, he's a good, really good player. Um, probably the gap between them is, you know, and it's the, the same gap between them is negligible. Yeah. So it's, it's basically a long tail. And then I, I think honestly, once you drop below, well, maybe below eighty, definitely below hundred, it's just random. Like there's no yeah. one, there's no one between hundred and where we are two sixty five that I'm like, you know, would be shocked if they beat us or we beat them kind of thing. Well, anyone like a hundred and below are, are the folks that have, you know, def definitely have full time jobs that can only get out two or three times a year, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, and that's one of the things that's really noticeable. Like the biggest shift I'd say is most of the international, like most of the international teams in those tournaments qualified. Most of them were fully funded, and the tournaments we played in in Canada were fully funded. And, you know, they're basically pros and there still were kind of what, you know, back when I was playing on tour 20 years ago, like just like the, the guys who were good regional competitive players, they were normally the best in their club. They'd go out, they'd hit four, a couple of bond spiels a year, three, four bond spiels under playdowns. There's still that tier, but the problem is that tier is having a harder and harder time staying in contact with the pro tier, the people who are basically paid to do it full time, who have the, the time, the money, the resources to go out and play you know, 10, 15 spiels a year. Like Ross White, he's got to have played, like they're only counting his best eight events, but I'm sure he's done 12 to 15 events already this year. I think he's, if I follow him on Twitter, they're basically in a spiel. It seems like every every weekend all over the world, right? And that's, that's that helps the funded by British Curling to do that. They, they tend to qualify. They've had a very good season in terms of performance, but there's very, there's basically no team that doesn't have funding like you have to have funding to be able to do that. It's, there's no possibility otherwise. And does that just come from like rink availability and the availability, uh, basically number number of spiels uh, in each region? Is that what are basically what it comes down to? Is you know there just aren't a lot of spiels in Europe that count for points? Is that pretty much it? Uh, I mean, it's a it's a couple of things, right? I think it's the Olympics is driving everything, and so that does put money into the sport. So, I mean, even when I got here seven years ago, the British Olympics, British Curling Association wasn't funding this many teams and flying them all over the world all the time. But they've got way more money to, to fly teams everywhere. Like it was possible. And when I, was, when I first came up here, we played a bond spiel and there was like Brewster was playing in it. Dave Murdoch was playing in it, but it was just a bunch of other, you know, competitive, but not, not kind of TV level teams from um, from Scotland, and they weren't really. They would maybe do one trip a year to Canada, and now those teams are basically over in Canada three, four times an autumn. Uh, so the money's kind of poured in for the pro teams, and that event doesn't exist anymore. It's just been kind of canceled because the pro teams stopped playing in it, and then there's just not enough kind of average teams to to play in it anymore. So there's been a kind of attrition of that that middle tier for sure just in the last kind of seven, eight years. So that's part of it. And then again, a part of it is just the reporting thing. So like there is a Scottish curling tour kind of, I would say it's probably a step below Ontario curling tour in terms of quality, but it's not that far below. And it's like Bruce Millett's team was playing on that the, the year before they won a slam. 
they, that, that was the kind of circuit that team was playing on before they kind of got enough funding from British curling to start doing a heavy circuit and play that. And they won that that year. But I don't think they got any order of merit points from it because you, when you play in that, of, that competition, they have their own point system. Hmm. You know, so it's a, it's a different system. I mean, one of the jokes in our team is uh, we, we've made semifinals in like the Aberdeen Open. This was probably been about four years ago. And McEwen came over and played an event, and he got bounced in the quarterfinals in that event. And so, like, we, we had more points than Mike McEwen that year, so we were, like, higher ranked than him. <laughs> right? And it's like, that's the only list I'm ever going to be ahead of Mike McEwen on because their points tracking system is totally different from the order of merit system. So, And, so, and you were also saying – before we got going that there's kind of a difference in how rinks are able to basically the business behind running a cash spiel is like way different in Europe. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big thing, right? So like the the traditional Canadian cash spiel model is the members, most of the curling rinks in Canada are member owned or owned by the local municipality. So they're public facilities and then they're not making they make their money off the membership fees and they make their money primarily off the bar and the restaurant or it's attached to it, right? The bar and the lounge. Um, and so when they're holding a cash spiel, that ice is normally donated for free by the club. And they're probably taking all the entry fees and putting that into the cash pool. And that actually makes the cost of running a WCT event significantly less. Whereas, most European facilities are privately owned. And so if they're trying to put an event on, you have to pay ice fees. So often if we're playing like a bond spiel in Scotland, you have to pay the entry fee to the bond spiel organizer. And then you pay ice fees just as you pay green fees if you're golfing. So it might be 10 pounds a person or 10 pounds per game or 20 pounds per game. In some places it's really expensive. Like if you're in an arena, it could be the sheet has to go out for 150 or 180 euros a game. Right, so that that changes the economics of holding a big time cash spiel. If that means the entry fee is either way up or the prize pool is way down. So, like for a Scottish curling tour event, I think first place is maybe three to four hundred pounds for for winning it, uh, and you're paying a two hundred two hundred pound entry. Right, whereas in Canada, at least back in the day, the rule of thumb was the entry fee should be at least ten times. Uh, the, sorry, the prize pool should be at least ten times the entry fee. Uh, so in this case, like the prize pool is basically nothing. Like you, 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 you know, even if you win the whole event, you're not really doing much more than you're not even breaking even at once you factor in costs. Whereas in a Canadian spiel, you're if you win, or at least if you qualify, you hope to to kind of put a little bit of money back in the bank. So it's a very different economic model too. Is that how the Riga spiel is this weekend? Uh, I don't. It's pretty. It's not super expensive. I, I think. Let me see. I've, I've lost track. It's probably around four hundred euros, maybe three hundred euros. Um, I don't know how. I'm gonna find out how the clubs uh, set up. Maybe I should try to grab someone for an interview there. Um, it's. I, I'm not really honestly looking at the price thing. We're, we're totally not points chasing at all. Like that was not our. Um, our intention. The reason we like this spiel is, first of all, Latvia is really cheap. Like our our hotel rooms are eleven euros each a night. 
like a pretty nice. decent hotel room. So it's like it's like your your pound goes a long way in Eastern Europe. So that is kind of appeal number one. It's because because Rob's already flying over. It's like where can we go that's as inexpensive as possible? Uh, we like the five game guarantee because that, that also kind of again maximizes game time on the ice. And we also like the fact that it was it's a full on ten end game, extra ends with clocks. It's got kind of everything going with the pre-game practice and LSD. So it's basically simulating as well as possible um, competition environment, which for us, the entire goal of doing this is to try to win the English Championship. So we picked stuff that we thought as a team would help us win the the English Championship. So that was the thinking there. I don't I did't even know what the prize is. I, think it's, I assume there's some kind of cash prize, but honestly, we haven't even taken a peek at it since... Uh, the flyer came out. So, so is that is that how most of the Scottish clubs are? Are most of the Scottish clubs privately owned, or are they owned by the the actual club? Uh, it varies. Most are actually privately owned. There's a few that are kind of publicly owned. Probably the closest to what I think of as a North American dedicated ice club would be Aberdeen, where. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the first thing, if you, if you cross the Atlantic, the first thing you have to wrap your head around is when you talk about a curling club, that's different than a curling rink. Whereas in Canada and the U.S. for sure, it's, it's normally the same thing. Like the club owns the rink, whereas here some other entity owns the rink. And then the, any, any given rink could have multiple clubs at it. So like Aberdeen might have 20 different clubs. Interesting. And they all go to the rink and rent the ice from the rink. And then but what a club is there is really different. Like a club might be say 20 to 30 people. And what they might do is have like a little, they may book ice as a club and maybe they play a little small leagues or train together and the clubs will put the teams into a competition. So the rink might have like a knockout tournament and they may also have something called a super league. Uh, and then each club would have a team in the super league and the super league teams would kind of, you know, compete for it. So it's it's a little bit of a different structure. Um, and so when we talk about clubs, that they, they mean them a little bit more like football clubs, where it's like you join as a member of the club, and that club might kind of put out different teams uh, for different competitions. And so it's it's actually is kind of a significantly different structure than like the North American model. So like the so like Curl Aberdeen probably has you know five or six different clubs that play at Curl Aberdeen. Is that basically what you're saying? Or it'd be like twenty. It'd be oh, like, wow. like, let's say, like, like, let's. It could be like University of Aberdeen alumni could be a club. Um, you know, Aberdeen teachers could be a club. So, like, basically, all the teachers get together form a curling club. It could hmm. be like a small village just outside of Aberdeen might have a club. Could be like a seniors club. Uh, the juniors might have a club. This is just all for junior curlers. Um, you know, and different clubs, and some of the clubs are really old. Like there's there's some clubs in Scotland that go back way before dedicated ice. They can go back a century or two, and so they've kind of got a long historical tradition. Or like sometimes someone just gets pissed off, and because they don't like the people in their clubs, they set up their own new club. Some are kind of more geared towards partying. Some are a bit more serious. So it just kind of varies uh, depending on what your interests are. So how does the fight for ice time work in a situation like that? Because I know, you know, here you're looking at, you know, just one club dealing with, you know, what night are the seniors going to play? What kind of ice time are we going to give the juniors? What are we going to give our men's league? Like, how does it work there where you've got 
you know, one facility that's having to deal with 20 different entities? Uh, so basically you've got to, the one thing that's really weird here is that you've got to book your stuff early. So most English championships, you've got to put your entry fee in, like your entry for your team has to go in in the summer. And that's because the England Curling Association has to go to the different rinks and then bid for ice against all these other clubs. So like, whereas in Canada, the club, the rink might bid with the provincial association or the national association for a championship. And then the ice just booked out. It's like us going to the club the reverse way and saying, well, when's the ice available? We need a weekend for this championship. And getting a full weekend of ice time is actually really quite difficult because the club makes its money by selling ice. And so it doesn't like renting out ice for a full block if it can make a lot more charging it to private rentals, say. Hmm. So it's actually it's actually quite hard for club curling to get ice time sometimes. And so – one thing that's kind of go that kind of flew under the radar and you sent me the story was one of the I guess it's one of the major rinks in Scotland is going to close. What um it was what the Brayhead Club or the Brayhead Rink, I guess. Yeah, so the Brayhead Rink, so I'm not I don't quite know the full structure there, but so the Brayhead Rink's interesting. It's probably one of the better rinks in terms of ice quality. And set up in Scotland. It's 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 modern. It's probably only twenty years old, and it's it's kind of a bit weird by North American standards. It's just attached to a large mall called the Into Brayhead Mall, uh, which is just in suburban Glasgow. And it's eight sheets. Um, they do a lot of good competitions there. Like they've done, they do they normally have done like a, a good junior competition, like an EJCT event, uh, a women's event, and a men's cash field event, as well as a Scottish curling tour event. So like a lot of big events are or held there every year. Uh, and I believe it was, well, the facility is obviously owned by the mall. And my understanding is the space was leased by the Boyhood Curling Association. And that lease ran out and the mall basically, I think, decided they could make more money doing something else with that space. So it sounds like the space is just gone. So it's not, it's not a case of a club, in that case, losing members. I think my understanding is about 700 active club curlers. Which is pretty decent for an eight cheater. Mm. Like an eight, if the normal rule of thumbs, you want about seventy-five to hundred members, active members per sheet. So, I mean, it's not thriving, but um, you know, when St. Paul was an eight cheater, and once it once it got to like a thousand, it kind of had the other problem where it was basically impossible for members to get ice time. So it's it's kind of a balancing act both ways. But seven hundred means you're going to be pretty full and busy most nights of the week. Um, so they've decided they can, make, they can make more money doing something else with that space. I'm not sure what they're going to do. but uh, And so basically, Glasgow now doesn't really have um, a major curling facility in the center proper anymore. There's a rink in one of the suburbs called Hamilton. There's another one pretty far out, um, out west uh, called Greenacres, which I play out a lot. That's the English Curling Association uses that, that a lot for championships too. So there's still other curling in the area, but there's like less in Glasgow Centre. So that's going to be a big problem that uh, Scottish curling is going to have to look at, I think, to plug that hole in the near future. So that's all of a sudden the largest city in Scotland without a curling facility. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. It's a there's, there's a lot in the suburbs, but there's nothing in the city center proper, to my knowledge. Um, 
So it's not like if you're in Glasgow, there's still places to curl, but but Brayhead was certainly the largest, the best, and the most convenient. So to lose it is is certainly a bit of trouble. So that's that's an unfortunate loss for the game, especially as especially as the world's world men's is coming to Glasgow uh, in March and April. So that's that's yeah. kind of a loss there, right at the moment where there's going to be a big curling event for Glasgow. So hopefully, hopefully the curlers will be able to figure something out, but. Uh, it's a bit. It's obviously sad to see when a curling facility goes under. So the in, and so the situation is kind of similar to what we've seen with the golf courses in Toronto, and then even with Ardsley in uh, suburban New York, where the in those in this case a mall, but in those case the golf courses basically said, you know, we can do so we can make more money using this facility for something else and kicking them basically kicking them out. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's it's probably true. I don't, like curling's not um, lucrative, right? Yeah. It's 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 not. It's kind of weird. It's very capital intensive, so it's expensive to build. Once it's up and running, it's obviously expensive in terms of power, but most of the other capital equipment in it lasts a long time, so it's not intensive in that sense. And it's actually not super labor intensive either. Like most curling clubs, only need one or two people around at any given time to keep it going. But um, the business model, the classic business model doesn't seem to be working too well these days. So it's it's kind of a question of what structure for curling rinks in the future is going to work to keep the game going. Have you heard anything on what that what that future could be? Because I know I, there, there was even talk about that when I was at Curling Night in America. They were talking about you know, the future may be actually more privately owned facilities, but is that, I mean, it sounds like that may not be sustainable based on how you're talking and about what's happened there at, there at Brayhead where, you know, they own, they can get in thinking, okay, yeah, I'll make money off of a curling facility and then quickly realize that they can make more money by doing something else with the, with the building. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, there's, there's two trade-offs, right? So, my bias is towards member-owned clubs. Um, I think when they're well run, they really they really click, right? And it, but it, but it takes a lot of um, it takes the right organizational culture and a lot of work to make it get there, right? But if you have a good club that's kind of member-owned, well run, um, it can really thrive. So, like for me, probably the most thriving curling club I've ever been a member of was St. Paul. Uh, in Minnesota, and I mean, it's, it's a really old club, 1912, but it had a fantastic culture, and it actually almost went under late 70s, early 80s. Like it was down, it's eight sheets, and it was down by all accounts to under 200 members. And um, the members who were there at the time kind of basically stared the loss of curling in Minnesota in the face and decided they were kind of going to pull together. And bring that club back, and it did a lot of kind of forward-thinking things. At least this is like early two thousands, but they put on a lot of development leagues. They did. They put a lot of emphasis on coaching. Um, one of the things that was interesting, it would, it would kind of frustrate me to no end. But um, Dex, who was the manager there at the time, kind of would always correct me on this: is that they had a handicap system for most of their leagues. So most of the kind of weeknight leagues that members could play in, they were all open, open gender, put in whatever team you wanted, but a really strong team, they'd have to give up to three points to the opposition and potentially hammer. Uh, and that kind of gave every team a chance to play against any team. 
<laughs> and so it was like kind of a link manager's job to handicap the teams that before each draw. And that I would that not kind of like actually, that job. <laughs> I mean, like, like Dex would know, and like it basically once they figured out it was a pretty decent curl. I was all, I never I almost never started with hammer or I was always down points. And, you know, you, you probably lose more games that way than you should. But um, you know, as Dex pointed out, it's it was kind of for the good of the club. Like if you have really strong teams always running weaker teams off, the weaker teams are just going to lose interest. Whereas at least if there's a hammer in play, or like there's three points in play kind of early on, like the strong team's got to really grind to, to kind of get back in the game. And the weaker team at least kind of has a shot. And, you know, one of the things that's nice about curling is if it comes down to one shot, you know, as, as could often happen, anyone can make that shot, right? So it did, it did kind of make it equal. They also had... Um, That's interesting that one of the larger, thing- more prestigious clubs in the U.S. would do something as out of the box like that. They were really out of the box. Like that, that was So the, one of the things that's nice about having moved around uh, from place to place with respect to curling is curling is not done the same way anywhere. Everywhere I've gone, things are different, and I've had to learn the kind of local customs and culture. But the, when I got to St. Paul, it was like everything was backwards for me for the first year. It took me a good like a good while to kind of figure things out. And so, some stuff I agreed with, others was weird. Like to this, I'm not sure if they still do it, but when I was there, the hand signals for turns are the complete opposite of everywhere else in the world. And I have no idea why. <laughs> Well, so there's, there's, one prov- there's one province in Canada that's different than all the others too, right? Because like whoever it was that taught me did it the exact opposite, and then I had to relearn basically. Oh, really? Okay. I have no idea what province it is in Canada. That maybe, well, maybe Newfoundland? I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out which one in Canada would be. Um, so yeah, the hand signals were totally backwards. And I got there and like early on, I was like, you want that turn? That makes no sense. But it, I kind of picked that up. That, that to me makes no sense because everyone else does it that way. But um, So what, so what they're, did, they're, you're, they're, you're curling it, what, from, from the torso out to the hand instead of vice versa? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I think they kind of like from their perspective, it makes sense. I know what they're saying, but like because of having had a lot of newbies, sometimes you might take the hand signals, put the rotation so it's going towards the hand as opposed to from the hand into the torso. But mm-hmm. in a sense, it doesn't really matter, right? It's just it's just a way of indicating something. It's just completely conven- by convention. There's no right or wrong, but it's funny that St. Paul and the kind of upper Midwest does it that way, and if you go to the East Coast, they do it the other way. Yeah, that's the way I was taught. The other way, where it's for hand to torso instead of torso to hand. Yeah, well, I'm because when I set up Oklahoma curling club, I wanted it the right way. I'm surprised, uh, considering how some of our games early on, where you had certain groups that kind of caught onto the game quicker than others, that we didn't implement the the. Uh, the start the game behind without hammer um, handicap. Uh, I guess we could have. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to do, and it's certainly political. Like so, St. Paul also like the, the by the time I got there, they were they kind of cleared off all their debt and had enough money in the bank that they could hire a full time manager for the rink, right? And I think that. That for a club's a big difference if you can hire someone who's doing the day-to-day operations and they're paid by the board. And so the board's not – they're still volunteering and helping out, but they're, they're in a position where they can actually have some paid full-time staff. Not every curling club 
that I've been to has been able to kind of pay someone a good enough salary to attract someone of kind of a good enough quality to run the rink properly. So that's kind of, you know, that's an issue too. Yeah. Oh yeah. The other thing about St. Paul I wanted to get to was during the summer, and this is what makes them so fantastic. I think they would have Thursday night work nights. So basically if you were a club member on Thursday night, you go down to the club and every summer they do a different project. So most of that club has actually been built by member sweat equity. And you're like, so, you know, the times I would go, I'd just be like, go put some primer on the wall or hammer that because I'm not that good with my hands. But like if you've ever been in the St. Paul locker room, it's all custom woodwork locker doors. And that's all members who are like good woodworkers who've taken the time to like make all the doors, all 300 odd doors, um, Every, everything in that club was built by member volunteer work, not by hiring contractors to do it. So that's that's a really different cultural shift. And it's a gorgeous building. Uh, it's kind of constantly kept up to date through renovation. They just kind of identify whatever is falling apart and needs help. And, and for years, the members have kind of put that equity, that sweat equity in the club. And that's one of the reasons it thrives. So do you think Glasgow could get a member-owned club down the road or is it just – is it a situation where um, land is too valuable and it would have to be kind of a privately owned for-profit uh, model there? It's not – Scotland's – I mean, England, south of England, like London I think would be a tough ask. That's just like popping a curling club in central London. <laughs> Given central London, you're, you're always going to be opened by a Russian oligarch in London. So <laughs> that's <laughs> like that's not gonna it's not gonna happen there. But Scotland, actually, there is there's still space for sure. Land's significantly less expensive, so I don't think that's the obstacle there. Um, I think just it's like the different cultural histories of Canada and Scotland with respect to curling. Like it split 100, 150 years ago, and. I don't think most curling clubs in Scotland are organized in a way where it'd be possible for them to to set up a member-run facility. Hmm. It, it could happen, but and I actually think like long term it's better if you can get there. But you know, you've been involved in a curling club, yeah. As a buyer, like the, the, the fight like for even a club that you know, if you have a hundred members. And a couple thousand in the bank, you're still a pretty long way, which is actually a very good place to be for an arena club. Mm-hmm. You're still like miles away from being able to get to the next step. It's not it was not member owned, but basically member leased, like what Adriana was talking about with the San Francisco curling clubs doing. That's that's taken them decades to get to the point where they can, as a club lease a facility and convert into a curling rink for a period of time and then hope that that then lets them get um, get a strong enough capital and membership base to then eventually buy um, a curling club, a curling facility, right? So that's like three steps, and it's a pretty tricky jump if you don't you don't like in the right place and the right people and the right capital. Well, they're also unfortunate enough to be located in San Francisco, where it's impossible to afford to build anything anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's the same as London, right? It's like very expensive real estate markets. I mean, I know that like Dean Gemmel uh, has for years dreamt about getting a curling club in Manhattan. And I said, again, yep. like one of the most play- expensive places real estate-wise. Uh, and I, I think we were talking to J.D. Lund, and he was basically saying similar thing for Japanese curling yep, associates. They'd love to get, get one in Tokyo. 
And to be frank, like, you know, honestly, a lot of the urban links in Canada kind of having a hard time these days. Like there was a great rink going up, like historic rink, Thistle Curling Club, which eventually which was right downtown Montreal, three-seater, 150 years of history, and just basically a tax bill did them in, and now it's a grocery store, right? It's, uh, it's kind of sad what happened there. Like that, that's, that was the second oldest curling rink in Canada, uh, just gone, because just the real estate's too expensive, even if you have the facility to maintain it long-term. Yep. So... Of what I guess your coaching season is over, and now you're transitioning from from coach to to actual competitive player. This year, are you done uh, being on the curling bench? Uh, for a little bit, like so we have a weird schedule where we, like the World Junior Bs is this year December, probably January, and then our playdowns is April. So I'll, I'll be spending a bit less time um, coaching between now and our playdowns because the adult playdowns are February. So yeah, I'll be I'm kind of this, this month's all all about the playdowns, all about getting ready for that. So that'll be my big focus. And then back to the curling bench, and then back to the coach's bench, and then back to the bench. Yeah. So one yeah. one thing, our our last topic before we get out of here. Uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, and it became a big issue in Canada and there are two interviews with two girls in a game and Rick Lang that are excellent and Rick I guess is in charge of the whole coaching program there in Canada and he did two very long very interesting interviews with two girls in a game that they they recently added a high performance consultant program where champions of various you know there's various ways that you can qualify for it by winning briars and scotties and winning worlds and even winning a certain number of slams where if you have this number of you know certain victories mean that you qualify for this high performance consultant program and instead of going in and doing your coaching certifications there in canada you are qualified to be on the bench at a briar and scotties um for this high performance program. And I guess it became very controversial that they did this program to begin with. Um, I guess the, and most of that came from the folks that have gone through the very strenuous coaching certification uh, process that there, that there is in Canada, that these folks, just because they, um, they are champions um, are able to circumvent that. Um, I'm kind of, I wanted to get your opinion on that. My opinion on it is that it doesn't really matter. Um, as long as, and I don't, I don't know this for certain. And this is the, the one question I have that has not been answered is, does this only, does this only um, apply to those top notch high performance players that are competing for Briar and Scotty's championships and competing to, get to the Olympics or does that include the lower levels and the grassroots and the junior curlers as well? I haven't gotten an answer to that question, but I think that if it only applies to the top level professional curlers that what they do as their profession is curl and their goal is to get to the Olympics, if it only applies to them, this really doesn't matter to me. To me, to me, it should not be an issue. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, th- a few thoughts. I think one one thing that's obvious, just being based in Europe, is the number of kind of star Canadian curlers who've been employed by European 
curling associations lately has kind of exploded astronomically. So it's like, you know, Glenn Howard was helping the Muirhead team. Ian Tetley's been coaching for the last few years for British curling. Craig Savile's been working, I think, with – was he with the Czechs or Germany or – I think Craig Savile's been over here helping a bit. Yeah, I think with the checks, right? So it's like these are like, you know, name brand curlers from Canada. And I think part of it honestly is just money. Like the the money that some of these federations are willing to throw at kind of high profile curlers to get their knowledge and expertise if they're an emerging curling country is a lot compared to what you can make back in Canada. I, there was a little there was a kind of pre brouhaha where um Mark Kennedy kind of went a bit like we should build a wall and stop all our curlers from kind of yeah. helping anyone else out in the world, right? <laughs> and it's like, I mean, uh, it's it's funny what he had to say. I I, I think a, it's that's impossible. Like everyone, everyone ultimately is a free agent, right? Like if someone wants to pay, let's put it this way: if if the English Curling Association had a lot of money, which we don't, and we could wanted to hire Mark Kennedy. Uh, which we'd love to have his knowledge, right? And we could hire him over here. I'm pretty sure there's a price at which he would jump ship, right? I think everyone's got a price. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, loyalty, national loyalty and patriotism is great, but at the end of the day, a job's a job. And there's, you know, only so many high level coaching jobs in Canada, and there's a lot more kind of popping up in a lot of other places in the world. So I think part of it's that, right? Is that there's a concern that some of that, high-profile talent is getting more opportunities overseas. And part of it's just the bureaucracy that Curling Canada has in place. So that's kind of, I think, part of what's going on in driving this. And so some of those kind of high-level teams, they want um, they want to be able to call on who they want to be able to call on. And I think one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the successful teams in the last few years have really gone – outside of the box when it comes to coaching, right? So Holman's team employing Adam Kingsbury, um, Cooney's team employing John Dunn as a sports psychologist, Colin Jones employed a sports psychologist for years on the bench. The Blacher team not really having a bench coach, but I'm highly confident that Kevin Martin in the background is kind of offering a lot of technical advice to that, right? So there's a lot of... Um, a lot of the, the elite teams aren't using the conventional certified level three curling Canada approved coach. And I think that's completely their prerogative to try whatever they want to try in order to win. Like, I don't think there's, you know, curling Canada has much right to do that. I think, as you said, to me, the one issue is there's a significant difference between juniors and adults, right? So uh, for junior curlers, I think right off the bat, one of the things, because I am certified and I've done all the certs and I've done all the background checks, one of, you have to do something in the UK called safeguarding, in the U.S., it's called Safe Sport. I'm not sure what it's called in Canada, but it's something similar where it's basically an evening course where you're on about kind of protecting children in vulnerable populations. You kind of, you know, learn about signs of child abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and also you kind of learn a lot about how to how to keep proper boundaries. And that's that's actually kind of a very important skill, even if you're not even if you're not like, like part of it's obviously keeping children safe from abuse, both physical and sexual. But part of it's also learning how you present yourself to young people in such a way that you're never kind of thought of as potentially being a pedophile or, or things being misinterpreted or what are appropriate boundaries, which I do think that not just elite level kind of superstar players, but like a lot of adults who maybe don't have children 
or don't work with children a lot in their day jobs, sometimes they don't really think about how what they say or do comes across properly. So I think some of that training and certification is absolutely necessary when you're dealing with juniors. So I think that's a different skill. And to be honest, like you said, for grassroots, that's a totally different coaching skill set too, right? Like, uh, you know, you and I have both done lots of learn to curls. That's teaching. That's a very different thing from teaching Brendan Botcher, right? So, like, I think Brendan Botcher would have no value in employing me. But you know, Kevin Martin might be a great personality, whatever. But there's no point in bringing Kevin Martin to talk about, you know, how to throw. Uh, a release for championship ice to your kind of Virginia curling club learn to curl, right? Yeah. So I think, and uh, when to your previous point, that was one of the things that Rick Lang did say in that interview was the the high the high performance consultants do have to go through basically their version of safe sport. Um, although he also said that Canada's version of safe sport, I guess that program isn't like officially completely done like the, the the program isn't available to, to to be taken yet but once they do they'll have to take yeah. that and they do do the background checks as well but yeah i think that's if you get into coaching and you go through your coaching certifications you're probably you know you're going to be best suited to teach the up-and-coming curlers the next generation of curlers the grad the the folks at the grassroots level who want to become the next generation of competitive Canadian curlers. But I don't think that those coaching certifications really would help those high, high profile teams. I think that they're looking for someone who can either give them heat of the moment advice on strategy or can help them with the strategy of, you know, how to get through, a week long tournament. And my opinion is if you went through the coaching certifications with the hope of that someday you would be on the bench at a Briar and Scotty's, you have done it for the wrong reasons. You get into coaching and you do those certifications. Like I did my level one instructor course here in the US, which is just step one of however many that we had that I'm going to have to go through in order to get to whatever point there is for, for me here in the U S depending on, you know, what is available to me. You know, I give, I went through it cause I want to be able to better learn, better teach the grassroots level curlers and people who are experiencing the sport for the first time who, um, who might want to have a, have a future in the sport and might want to be a curler for the rest of their lives. That's who I'm trying. That's who I want to, to be around. I don't have any delusions of grandeur of someday being on the bench at the Olympics. And to be honest, that's, that's where the biggest impact is. Like I've probably, I've, I, I've lost count, but it's certainly, if it's not, not it's, if it's not over a thousand, it's definitely in the hundreds of kind of beginner curler clinics, number of people have kind of introduced to the game over the years has got to be in this in the kind of hundreds now and that's all just because of having done like the basic level one level two kind of coaching stuff and you know obviously most of them don't stick with it but but a lot have and and they then kind of go on and do their coaching and they kind of that's how you grow the game and there's there's massive impact to be had from being learned to curl and kind of helping like the kind of the, the next skill up, like learn to curl better or whatever or development or whatever your local club calls it, or, you know, running your local junior club 
Um, all that stuff kind of, I think, has bigger impact. And I, I think speaking from experience too, I think it's actually rewarding in and of itself, right? You, just, you get so much back from, from what you give into the game too, I'd say. Yeah, so you've done your you've done your certifications. Would it bother you if um, if England hired uh, Glenn Howard to come key, to come coach Team Sugden and sent you to the curb? I think if Team Sugden had any money, they'd probably do that. I didn't feel, I didn't feel like said that. I didn't come on my pod and basically said we want to fire Jonathan and get a good coach. So he did. How much he did say I get. That. <laughs> Given all the days I spent in Loya, Finland, that's the thanks I get from Team Sugden. So, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like that's part of being a coach too. Like, the, there's a Dave Ramsey, who's kind of one of the, the high performance junior uh, coaches up in Scotland. He's just like, you should expect that a team's going to fire you the day they're going to hire you. Right? It's just like, that's just if the juniors decide they want to go in a different direction you got to be prepared to let them go in a different direction. Like it, it may be that that team eventually says we've gone as far as they can with me. Like it, it's nothing to do with me kind of running out of things to teach them, but maybe just listening to my voice for too long, maybe they need some fresh eyes or an opportunity comes up that makes sense. Right. I think that's like everything, everything has an expiration point, right? It's, it's the same with teams, right? Like I've, you know, lots of teams I've played on, like at some point we may just go our separate ways for whatever reason. So I've just learned in Chrome that you just have to accept that that nothing's forever. And especially with, with juniors, they're either going to age out or they're going to quit or they're going to decide they want to get a different coach. And all three of those are kind of perfectly acceptable and probably at some point good things to do if they want to, to de- develop in different ways. So basically, you think that uh, Team Sugden should fire you? Yes, I'm asking for them. I'm asking for the sack. <laughs> well, so t- today, Joe, Joe, yesterday I was at the rink and Joe was just working as like a coach for the, the corporate stuff. And he told me that his goal was when he aged out of juniors was to coach another team and have his team beat my team. That's a good goal. That I was coaching. <laughs> I, have that is, I have to say that is excellent goal setting. And I think that that means that you have taught Joe well. <laughs> I guess so. It's kind of like, I was like, ooh. <laughs> Oops, I did a little bit too good of a job there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I mean, to, to me, it's actually flattering, right? If, if, I've, if someone I've coached wants to be a coach, then probably something I've done has been, you know, inspirational or helpful or, or kind of have them think about helping or giving back to the game too, which is, uh, I think to me, like really important, perhaps more important than ever coaching on the bench at the Briar. All right, that's a that's a, that's a good positive note to end on. I think oh, you know, we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back later this month. We will preview a whole bunch of championships as we get into play down season and championship season. I know middle of February once again on the same weekend you've got the Scottish Championship, Japanese Championship, American Championship, and I think the Swiss have it that weekend too. But another loaded weekend, and we'll. We'll talk about that. Hopefully we'll have some guests and uh, yeah, it's good. Hopefully we're, hopefully we're going to be back into doing this uh, regularly. Although I know you're, I know you're going, uh, you've, you've got some tournaments that you're playing in, so that, that may affect it, but, uh, but hopefully we're back to doing this regular now that the calendar is turned. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. We'll try to kind of crank them out at least twice a month and uh yeah, uh, and actually, after the first week of February, my curling schedule 
opens up a lot. So unless you win, uh, well, no, then we, I just, I'll just sit around and podcast until Euros. I don't need to practice for that or anything. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.